0: seated. It was the fall of the year, and it was a Friday night in Texas. And you know what that means? It was football season. The fans were on both sides of the stadium. The lights were on, and Dallas Hillcrest was set to square off against Dallas Spruce. The bands were playing, dueling fight songs. The cheerleaders were turning cartwheels. The whistle blew. The teams advanced. And the kicker from Dallas Hillcrest put his foot into the ball and sent it deep. The game was on. John McClamrock was on the kickoff team for Dallas Hillcrest. He broke through the blocking wedge that Dallas Spruce had set up. He had the ball carrier in his sights. He lowered his head and they collided. John's chin caught the runner's thigh. One of his teammates said it sounded like a tree trunk breaking in half. His head snapped back. John fell face first to the ground, he would never walk again. He would have no movement below his neck for the next 34 years. That Friday morning, October the 17th, 1973, started out just like any other morning for John McClamrock. He jumped out of bed. He was ready for a football game that night. He threw on his bell-bottom jeans. You remember we wore those in the 70s. He put on a loud patterned shirt with an oversized collar and three buttons on both sleeves. You remember those, fella? He got into his red El Camino with a vinyl roof and he headed to Hillcrest High School. He was 17 years old, the all-American boy. One of the girls that had dated him said he was just heartbreakingly beautiful. He worked at the local Tom, at the Tom Thumb grocery store there in his neighborhood, and the girls from Hillcrest High School would actually go to the grocery store and buy watermelons they didn't want just so John would carry them to the car for them. Well, that particular morning, his mind was on that ball game that Friday night with Dallas Spruce. That was to be the last day that John ever drove that Red El Camino. It would be the last time that he ever suited up for a football game. And the story that unfolded over the next 34 years was a story of the love and devotion of a mother. Anne McClamrock was 54 years old. A striking woman. She had strawberry blonde hair and green eyes. That Friday night at the hospital, the doctors informed her that John probably would not make it through the night. But he did. And the next night, and the next. In the late spring of 1974, after therapy and attempts at rehabilitation, Ann and Mac McClamrock brought John home to their modest one-story home in Preston Hollow in North Dallas. Every morning before sunrise, Ann would get up, get out of bed, put on her makeup, and fix her hair. She'd put on a nice dress or a pantsuit, dab some perfume on her neck, and head into John's room. She shaved him. She clipped his nails. She brushed his hair and his teeth, and she gave him a sponge bath and scratched his nose when it itched. She fed him all of his meals, one bite of food after another. She changed his catheter. She emptied his drainage bag when it was full. And she turned him constantly throughout the day to prevent bed sores. Monday through Saturday, she almost never left the house. On Sunday mornings, she went to church. After church, she would go to Tom Thumb where John used to work and buy groceries. Once a month, She treated herself to a permanent at the J.C. Penney Hair Salon. That was it. Every other moment was devoted to John. By 1995, Anne was in her late 70s. She was still maintaining that daily schedule. A few years earlier, she had read an article about exercise and a healthy heart, and so she'd ordered a cheap stationary bicycle from a catalog and put it in her bedroom. Every night, she faithfully pedaled that bicycle. Wearing ancient cracked tennis shoes, she would take quick walks around the block. But Anne knew time was catching up with her. She added one single sentence to her nightly prayers. She asked God to give, let her live one day longer than John. Only one day. But she fervently prayed for that one day. And that way, she could always take care of Him. And John... Continued to hang on. On January the 12th of 2001, Anne celebrated her 82nd birthday. John's younger brother, Henry, brought home chicken enchiladas dinners from El Phoenix. He brought Anne a bag of red licorice, her favorite candy, and some perfume. Five years later, on her 87th birthday, they repeated the process. And now it's obvious Anne is slowing down. Instead of getting dressed when she got out of bed every morning, she spent her mornings in her nightgown and her favorite green terry cloth bathrobe. She was having trouble hearing. Her eyesight was failing. She began to wobble when she walked and once she fell while she was cooking breakfast. In the fall of 2007, she fell and broke a bone in her right shoulder. Only then did she allow Henry to take over, turning John in bed. It was January of 2008. Anne and John and Henry. Celebrated her 89th birthday. You know how? They had takeout from El Phoenix in a bag of red licorice. Late February of that year, John was taken to Presbyterian Hospital because he had bed sores that wouldn't heal. He developed a fever and pneumonia. His tired and frail body was wearing out. And he asked Henry, he said, Bring mom over. He said, Have her look pretty. She'd want me to see her that way. Henry looked at his older brother and he asked John, He said, John, are you giving up? And there was a long silence food cart rattled down the hallway and a nurse's sneaker squeaked on the hallway floor. You could hear the sound of heart monitors and the wishing of ventilators coming from other rooms. And John finally said, we know about her prayer. We all know about mom's prayer. He said, Henry, I need to go so she can go. It was March eighteenth, two 2008. Henry drove Ann to J.C. Penney so she could go to the hair salon and have her hair done. And then he took her to the rehab facility to see John. She walked in the room and the first thing she did was check his catheter and then inspect his bandages on his bed sores. She smoothed his hair along his temples and touched his forehead. She ran her hand down his face and past his cheekbones and in the curl of his hair. John looked at his mother and he said something he'd never said before. He said, Mom, I know how hard it's been for you. She said, Hard? Hard? Johnny, it's been an honor. Henry took her home. Helped her get into bed and she fell asleep. Thirty minutes after she left, John McClamrock closed his eyes and quietly drifted away. He never made a single sound. Her prayer had been answered. She had lived to care for her paralyzed son. Now here's the question. Does that story in any way tug at your heart this morning? Does the devotion of His mother Does her love, her prayer, does her ordeal, does it cause your eyes to mist just a little bit? Let me tell you a story of another mother this morning. It's in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 that I'm going to read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, wanted to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for... That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there was no room in the inn for the family. So this young Jewish girl by the name of Mary brought her son into the world in a stable. There was no bassinet for her baby. There was no cradle there. There wasn't a crib. He was laid in a manger with the straw that the cattle ate. Herod was on the throne at Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth. Wise men came from the east to worship him. They inquired of Herod. They said, where is the one that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. And the Bible tells us Herod was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. He told the wise men, he said, when you find him, you come back and tell him where he is. I, I want to worship him also. Herod lied. And so the young mother with her baby... And his father fled to Egypt. There were a lot of things about her son that Mary didn't understand. We see first her lack of understanding, her first lack of understanding, when as a young lad Jesus went with them to the Passover. They lost him. They assumed he was with some of the others of the family on the way home. It was only after they'd gone a day's journey that they missed Him. And so, worried and with great anxiety, they turned back to look for Him. And they found Him. He was okay. He was in the temple, asking and answering questions of the doctors and the lawyers that were there. Mary asked Him, she said, she asked her firstborn son, Why have you dealt with your father and I this way? Why have you treated us like this? I can almost hear a tenderness in that voice. But I can also hear a a bit of impatience and perhaps even a touch of anger. Why have you done this to us? Why have you dealt with us this way? Jesus said, don't you know? (coughs) I've got to be about my Father's business. As much as to say, you should have known where to find me. My first and supreme loyalty is not to you. My first and supreme loyalty is to God. That same lack of understanding surfaces at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. The wine ran out and Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Moffat's translation has Jesus saying, woman, what have you to do with me? Sounds rude to us in our day and time, but in the times that it was spoken in the language of the day, Jesus is saying, actually as tenderly as He possibly can, that Mary, my orders come from above. Talk about misunderstanding. Look at the fourth chapter of Luke sometime. Jesus goes back and He's preaching His first sermon in His home church. Now, I can guarantee you one thing. I have no doubt in my mind that that, Sunday mo- that morning at the synagogue, Jesus is going to preach His first sermon, I would almost guarantee you the whole family was there. They're waiting. They want Jesus to make a good impression. The boy has come home. They wanted to make sure that He made His mama proud that day. It starts out and it talks about they heard the gracious words He spoke. Can you see the pride welling up? When they heard the gracious words that He spoke, they sat up a little straighter. They looked at each other and big smiles on their faces. Oh, but Jesus knew one thing. He knew how to wipe those smiles off their face and He did it quick. He told them in the long ago when God needed a boarding place for one of His greatest prophets, He couldn't find one among the Jews. He told them God was willing and eager to heal lepers, but the only man of the days of Elijah that, Elisha that had the faith to be healed was a pagan by the name of Naaman. Well, those smiles turned to frowns, and they had had enough, and at that particular moment, if you read the story, that congregation turned into an angry mob, and the young preacher that was come home to preach his first sermon was a fugitive running for his life. Mary's son went about doing good. Mary's son healed the sick and he raised the dead. He made the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and the blind to see, but he upset the status quo of the religious people of his day. He denounced the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. And after a ministry of only three years, Mary saw the tide of popular opinion turn against her baby. And there's a movement to put him to death. Now you think about that. Think about the anguish, the anxiety, and the heartbreak of this mother. As she knows that the people have turned against her son And they want to kill him. Can you imagine what that felt like for her? He's in the garden of Gethsemane and cruel hands come to Gethsemane that night and they take him away. And he goes through the mockery of a trial. And then he is tied to a wooden post and he's beaten with a cat of nine tails, a flagellum. He's beaten almost to death when they scourge him. And they spit on him. And they hit him. They press a crown of thorns on his head. We're talking thorns. And they didn't just set it there, they pressed it there till it drew blood. And then they took Him out to Calvary. And at Calvary they nailed Him to a rough-hewn wooden cross. Now here's what I want you to see. I want you to get this picture in your mind right now. Jesus has been beaten. This crown of thorns has been pushed down upon His head. He's been nailed to this rough-hewn wooden cross. And I want you to look by an eye of faith and see Mary, His mother. And I want you to see her, not Him, I want you to see her this morning at the foot of that cross. I want you to see her look up at the mangled, beating, bleeding, beaten body of her firstborn son. And I want you to see the tears flowing down her cheeks as she looks at His body up on that cross. I want you to see her as she remembers Him coming to her with those little childhood cuts and scrapes. I want you to see her as she looks up on that cross and she remembers Him coming to her with the skinned elbows and the skinned knees that she would touch her mother's lips to and make them feel better. And now He's hanging on that cross and she can't do anything about it. She can't kiss it and make it better anymore. She travels down memory lane, and she sees. The, she remembers the night He was born. She remembers the stable. She remembers the the smell of the animals. She remembers the manger where she laid that baby that night. How many of you mothers remember your baby's first tooth? She remembered Jesus' first tooth. How many of you still have a lock of hair? in an envelope or a scrapbook somewhere. She remembered His hair as a little boy. She remembered His first step. His first words. And she's there at the foot of that cross and she sees her baby boy. She doesn't see the Savior of the world. She sees her baby boy. And she's thinking, why? 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 Why did they do this? Why did this have to happen to my baby? And then she remembers the words of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. When Simeon said, One day a sword will pierce your heart because of this child. Can you this morning, can you find it somewhere down in your heart? To shed tears with that mother that's sitting at the foot of the cross on Calvary's hill? The story of John McClamrock caused some tears to well up in your eyes, didn't it? For some of you, it even caused them to run down your cheek. I saw it. Why in the name of Israel's God can we no longer find it in our hearts to shed tears with the mother at the foot of the cross on Calvary's hill? Is it because we've heard about it so much, we've read about it so much, we've sung about it so much that we've become desensitized to the tragedy that took place on Calvary? That it doesn't mean to us what it ought to mean I think all too often, we're like the governor in C.D. Montague's rough justice. It seems a little boy named Braun had gone to church with his governess for the very first time. He's never been to church and he watches every part of the service with interest. And the preacher climbs into a high pulpit and he gives out a piece of terrible news. It's about a brave and kind man that was nailed to a cross, ferociously hurt a long time ago. A man that feels a dreadful pain even now, he says, because something was not done that he wants them to do. And little Braun thinks the preacher's telling the story because there are a lot of people there. Surely someone will do something about it. He's, he's sitting up on the edge of his pew impatiently. And he can hardly wait for the service to be over and to see exactly what's going to happen. What, what are they going to do about fighting this injustice? And he weeps. That little boy wept openly. And all around him people are sitting like nothing happened. No one's at all upset. And the service is over and people act like they haven't even heard such terrible news. It's like nothing remarkable has happened and this little boy Bron is leaving the church that day he's trembling and the governess looks at him and says Bron don't take it to heart so someone's going to think you're just really peculiar maybe that's what we need to be peculiar to be able to weep at the story of Jesus Christ To be alive and sensitive in our spirit. To be able to actually show some emotion over the suffering Savior and the lost souls of men. To listen. To really listen to what's going on in God's house. To live for Jesus. We need to take Jesus Christ seriously this morning. Don't leave this building without taking Jesus Christ seriously. And if you need to make changes in your life to do that, it's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.